Well, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it is always good and it's helpful when you hear God's Word preached to have a copy of it open in front of you so you can examine what you are hearing. And so if you don't have one with you this morning, we encourage you to use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 884. Uh, Our church began a sermon series through the Gospel according to Luke all the way back in November of 2017, and in God's providence we have made it to Luke's account of Jesus' resurrection on Easter of 2019, as this morning we're going to look at verse 50 of chapter 23 through verse 12 of chapter 24. And kids, I hope you'll give special attention to this text because it tells us a truth that means everything to Christians. Students, you want to pay attention to this text because the Bible will go on to say, without this, our hope is in vain. It's pointless for me to preach. You are still in sin. And of all the people in the world, we should be most pitied. But Christ indeed has risen. And so let us read together from Luke chapter 23, verse 50, through chapter 24, verse 12. Now there was a man named Joseph, from the Jewish town of Arimathea. And he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Joseph took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the mother of Mary, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling. And what had happened? And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we do bow before You now, acknowledging yet again on this Lord's Day that Christ has risen, that our hope is not in vain, that we are still not in our sin. And we're of all people on the earth most blessed, For you know us and love us in Jesus Christ. 
And so help us to hear with hearts of affection and repentance and faith this morning. Help me to preach as your word says that I must. With boldness, with clarity, help us to hear earnestly. Help me to preach as a dying man unto dying people, for we are not promised even the remainder of this day, let alone another year to hear your word. So help us to hear earnestly, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was on April 8th, 1966, that Time Magazine published a cover that recently the Los Angeles Times has called the most iconic cover in the history of American magazines. It was a bold cover. It was a controversial cover. It was an unprecedented cover because it had no image. It was just a black background with three words, a three-word question in red, bold type. Is God dead? If you know anything about American culture at this time, the Vietnam War was on. The counterculture was hot. The civil rights movement was growing. The political environment was toxic. And the authors of the cover article were asking, where is God? Amidst all the struggles, amidst all the sorrows, and you could be in here this morning maybe wondering the exact same thing. Is God dead? Where is He in the midst of my difficulty? Where is He in the midst of my hardship? Where is He in the midst of my struggles and sorrow? Or maybe you do believe that God does exist, but for all practical purposes, you live as though He is dead, because He means little to you as you live Sunday through Saturday, or maybe you're a professing Christian, and you do believe not only that God exists, but that Christ is the Messiah who was crucified and raised to new life three days after his death, but you recognize that so often in your life, rarely do you give much attention to the resurrection apart from an Easter Sunday once a year, and you recognize that the New Testament understands this resurrection of our Lord to be oh so central to our faith, and you want to know what it might mean to live more faithfully in light of its truth. So we're coming to a text this morning that not only, in many ways, is the fulfillment of all kinds of Old Testament expectation, even all kinds of expectation already in Luke's Gospel, but a text that speaks to our experience, no matter where we find ourselves today. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our theme, and it's a theme that we find in Luke's Gospel delivered through the perspective of women. Did you notice as I read the text how Luke frames this story of Jesus coming back to life through the eyes of women? Now we're going to get later on into the sermon of why that's so unique. But what you'll see, of course, at the end of chapter 23 is that the women are preparing for Christ's burial. Then at the beginning of chapter 12, they're perplexed at the empty tomb. And then they go on to proclaim, be the first ones to proclaim uh, the risen Christ. And so I just want to walk through this text under the perspective of uh, these women. But if you weren't with us last week, or maybe you haven't been with us at all recently in our study through Luke's Gospel, we want to make sure we know where we left off. Of course, we left off last week about 3 p.m. on Good Friday. Jesus has been killed on a cross on a hill called Calvary. And what we're told is almost immediately after breathing out out of his last breath, A Roman centurion cries out, surely this man was innocent. Mark's gospel says, surely this man is the son of God. 
And you'll notice if you look up to verse 49 of chapter 23 that Jesus' disciples and acquaintances were there watching from a distance. But you'll notice also in verse 49, the women who had followed him from Galilee, a phrase that's going to be repeated in our text, were there watching as well. And so as Good Friday continues and even comes to its conclusion, what we're going to begin to see is that they're preparing for Jesus' burial. And look at verse 50 to see who is the one in charge of the burial. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. And he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Now, if you want to underline that word council, it's just a word from which we get this phrase in biblical studies called the Sanhedrin. So that is something like the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. Seventy men made up this court, and they would sit in judgment upon the matters in Israel at that time. And if you know anything about Luke's gospel, even as recently as the previous 24 hours in Jesus' life, and you hear Luke saying, all right, we have a member of the council, one of Sanhedrin, who's good and righteous, you should automatically think, that is impossible. Because what has the Sanhedrin just done to Jesus? They have conducted a sham trial that has led to his false accusations and condemnation. They have taken him to Pilate, falsely accused him even worsely before Pilate in order that they could get him executed at a cross. And then when Pilate says, Jesus is innocent, take Take him away. I'll just discipline him. They say, no, we want him dead. And so as they're at the stone pavement before Pilate, they are something like religious yell leaders, foaming with fury at their mouths, whipping up the crowd into a frenzy that they might cry what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And one of those men is good and righteous, Joseph of Arimathea. But you see what Luke says in verse 51. Joseph had not consented to their decision and action And he was looking for the kingdom of God. John's gospel will say he was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. And this language of looking for the kingdom of God is Luke's way of saying he was genuinely converted. Here in the second to last chapter of Luke, we're reminded of something we saw in the second chapter of Luke. You might remember this old man named Simeon who was looking for the kingdom of God, the consolation of Israel. He takes the baby Jesus into his arms and essentially says, I can now die in peace. I have seen God's Messiah. I have been looking for the kingdom. And Joseph is one such a man. And it's quite striking to me at least, it's as though his experience of Christ's death at Calvary was sufficient to move his faith from being private to public. As he's now going to do something that was actually quite dangerous for a person on the Sanhedrin to do at the time. Look at verse 52 through 53. He goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It's not Jesus' closest followers burying Jesus. It's this religious figure. Wealthy, rich man, other Gospels will say, this Jewish leader that's burying Jesus. And I wonder if you have had an experience of the crucified king that has led you from being something of a quiet disciple to one that's willing to risk reputation in service to the cause of Jesus Christ. And you need to know something about Joseph even in this moment. He would have been in great hurry to get this done. We know Jesus died about 3 p.m. on Good Friday. The Sabbath 
in Jewish culture began at 6 p.m. on Good Friday. So that's why you'll notice in verse 54 that we're told the Sabbath was beginning. More literally, it was lighting up. Which probably gives this image what would happen about 6 p.m. on the Sabbath evening. The Sabbath candles would be lit. So Jewish customs and law said, if a man's crucified, he's got to be taken down and buried before the day is done. So Joseph is hurrying about trying to get Jesus into this tomb where no one has yet been laid. And he's also simultaneously getting ready. It's the day of preparation. He's preparing to observe and obey the Sabbath command that is about ready to begin. And all the while this is going on, it's as though these women that have been following Jesus all along are now following Joseph, paying attention to what he is doing. Because you'll see verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Another gospel says, they sat across the way and watched Jesus being buried. Now, why is that important? That the women are paying attention not just to the tomb in which Jesus was laid, but how he was laid. The reason is this. Skeptics would soon say the women were just confused. They went to the wrong tomb. They missed the man. They didn't realize how Jesus was actually laid. But Luke is saying what? No, they were staring into that tomb. They knew exactly the position that the Savior was laid to rest. Oh, so significant for what was going to happen in some 36 hours time or so. And these women were devoted, weren't they? Look at verse 56. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. Kids, that's in order to they could kind of mute, they could get rid of the stench of death that would have been on Jesus. They were going to perfume him, is what the text is essentially saying. And on the Sabbath, we're told, they rested according to the commandment. You know what's also striking about this text? Right here when Jesus is buried, you got Joseph burying Jesus, the women paying attention, preparing perfume and spices in order to take away the stench of the Savior's death. You want to ask the question, where are the apostles? Where are these 11 men that have walked with Jesus for three years, chosen followers of this Lord? And isn't it so often true that it's ordinary people, devout disciples, that can uniquely display their love for Jesus Christ? Because maybe you'll never have the personality that generates a public platform for Jesus Christ. Or maybe you haven't received these gifts of leadership or administration or whatever else may be that would allow you to shepherd uniquely Christ's church. I hope you might be encouraged even from the example of these people that you nonetheless can do great service for Jesus Christ that honors Him through simple obedience and devotion to Him. And it's striking even if you compare Luke's Gospel with Matthew's Gospel because what we have is these ordinary followers of Jesus obeying the Sabbath commandment on the Sabbath. They're resting. But Matthew's Gospel, if you go read it on later today, will say there's another group of people that are actually working really hard on the Sabbath. And it's the chief priests and the Pharisees. And here's the irony. The chief priests and the Pharisees were often accusing and assaulting Jesus on what? His supposed abuses of the Sabbath. Yet on this holy Saturday, on the Sabbath day, they're running about in order to make sure Jesus doesn't get out of the tomb. Because what Matthew says is they go to Pilate. And this is significant for what's about to come in Luke's Gospel. They say, we heard Jesus say, he's going to rise again on the third day. And so what you need to do is put a stone in front of the tomb, put a guard in front of the tomb, 
Because what's going to happen if you don't do that, Pilate? His disciples are going to come in. They're going to steal the body. They're going to say, he is risen. And the last fraud will be worse than the first fraud. So Pilate assents to their request. This 3,000-pound stone, kids, if you can imagine that, 3,000-pound stone rolled in front of the tomb. We're told also they sealed it with wax, put soldiers around to guard it, to make sure no one gets in, but especially no one gets out. I think it was a couple years ago I read this best-selling book that seems to happen every year. You know, you have this fiction novel or whatever that storms to the top of the New York Times bestseller list and creates something of a hullabaloo in the literary world, and eventually you decide to read it just to know what all the fuss is all about. And so I was reading one of these books, and it was very much a spellbinding tale that kept me up many hours over the course of a few days. I lost sleep over it. Such a page-turner was this book. But by the end, I was wanting to throw the book down on the floor in frustration because the ending came up short, as you know these books can sometimes do. It was full at the end of no justice. The evil triumphed over the good. And if you're someone like me, you feel like you have just wasted time reading all of these pages. And if you've had that experience before, maybe in a movie you can have the same kind of experience as well. You are in the emotional state of Jesus' disciples on that first Lord's Day morning. Because what you need to know, they are going to the tomb, these women, and they are not expecting it to be empty whatsoever. But as the old hymn says, in vain, the stone, the watch, the seal, Christ has burst the gates of hell, death in vain forbids him rise. Christ has opened paradise, because now they go from preparing to being perplexed at the missing tomb. Notice verse 1 of chapter 24, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, at first light, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They are planning to find a dead man that they can perfume. But what do they see? Look at verse 2 through 3. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus Christ, and they were perplexed. And you wonder to some degree what was perplexing to these women. Did they look around at each other and say, as they would eventually be accused of saying, did we find the wrong tomb? That stone was there, wasn't it, last night? But it's rolled away. And what are these soldiers doing on the ground? But another gospel says, Not just that two angels appeared, but that one of them was seated on that stone. And their confusion now gets illumination. Look at verse 4 through 5. They were perplexed about this. Behold, two men, kids, those are angels, standing in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Sometimes, isn't it true, even in our Christian life, we seek the living among the dead? Thinking that we can find the Lord's redemption in obedience to the law. Thinking that we can find a way to heaven and the number of good works that we perform. Thinking that we'll find the risen king and wrote ritualistic liturgies 
seeking the dead, seeking the living among the dead. And maybe you are doing that even this morning in a way you don't realize. Seeking to earn God's favor in a place that the Bible just calls dead. Seeking for life where it can never be found. And I'm sure none of us have to live very long before eventually we'll come across words that change the course of our life. You know, sometimes that can be in the context of marriage. Words like, will you marry me? Or, I'm pregnant. Or words in the context of employment. I'm sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. Words in the context of our country. Donald Trump is now our president. Words in the context of grief. You have terminal cancer and only three months to live. Now, what you get now in verse 6 of this passage are seven words that not just have changed a life, they have changed human history. For notice what the angel says, He is not here, but has risen. And from this moment forward, Christianity is a religion of resurrection. It is a religion of spiritual resurrection. Hearts dead in sin through faith in Jesus Christ being made new, raised to new life in Him. It's a religion of resurrection in the affections. Long last in our life, passions that were directed towards sin have now been renewed by the Spirit and directed towards holiness and godliness. And we know even we have this hope of physical resurrection at the end of all things, raised unto physical everlasting glory with Jesus Christ because He was bodily raised from the grave. Seven words that have changed history. But the emphasis here towards these women is you should have known better. This shouldn't be such a surprise because look at what the angel says at the end of verse 6 through 7. Remember how he told you why he was still in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. If you haven't been with us through Luke, you wouldn't know where we have seen this before, but we have indeed seen Jesus say this exact same thing to his chosen followers. So you can flip back to Luke chapter 9, verse 22, where he says to his people, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. They'd heard it before. And not long before even this event, in Luke chapter 18, verse 33, Jesus says, The Son of Man, after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. You heard this before. What are you doing here? You have forgotten the truth of Jesus Christ. And maybe you know the Bible well enough to know that one of the most common dangers that God's people have faced throughout the ages is the tendency to forget God's Word. The tendency to not remember God's promises. That's why the Christian life is so much about coming daily, often, regularly, consistency to the truth of God's Word because it's there we find our nourishment. It's there we find our direction. It's there we meet with Jesus Christ. And so I wonder if there might be someone in your life, even this week, that needs to hear a promise of Christ that you can go to and say, you remember what he said about your struggle. You remember what he said about your hardship. You remember what he said about that good fight of faith. And the women remember it, don't they? As they go from being perplexed to now proclaiming the risen king. Look at verse 8 through 9. 
And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now, you're not going to understand how countercultural Luke's gospel is until you understand how radical it was that he tells us it indeed was a group of women who are the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And here's why that's so radical. At this time, in Jewish culture, but most of the ancient world at this time, women were not allowed to testify in courts of law because their gender supposedly made them totally unreliable. It's why even by the second century, this famous philosopher named Celsus, he mocked Christianity's claims of a resurrected Christ as being little more than the hysterical ravings of a few females. As recently as even the 1800s, another French philosopher, Renan, he sneered at a few overly emotional women that gave to the world the hallucination of a resurrected Savior. Yet what does Luke tell us? It was the women that first believed and preached Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. And here's why that's significant. If Luke wanted to curry favor with the culture of his time, he would have said it was the 11 apostles that first went to the tomb. It was the 11 apostles that first heard the word from the angel. It was the 11 apostles that first believed and preached. But he actually says, no, this is what happened. Even though the culture of the time wouldn't want to accept it. Why? Because it is true. This is reliable. And what you see all throughout Luke's gospel is he reminds us over and over and over and again here near the end, God delights to use the lowly and the unlikely to proclaim a risen Savior. God delights to use the forgotten and the forsaken to advance the cause of Christ in the world. It's through ordinary means now, like preaching, like churches, like covenant homes that the world doesn't pay much attention to that the risen Christ continues to subdue the nations unto himself. And he even tells Theophilus, the original recipient of this letter, notice verse 10, who these women were. He says it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and some other women who told these words to the apostles. So he says to the early church, uniquely to Theophilus, hey, if you want to know the truth of what I'm talking about, go find these women. They're known in the church. Go talk to them. They saw it. They heard it. They observed it. But look at what the apostles think about these women's words. Look at verse 11. These words to them seemed an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Maybe it's because they were so stunned in their grief. Maybe it's because they too had forgotten, of course, the truth of Jesus Christ's prophecies and predictions. Uh, The text says it's an idle tale, something like a fairy tale, kids, is what these men thought when they heard that Jesus has come back from the grave. Maybe it was more, it's too good to be true. And I wonder if you preach a gospel that's too good to be true. You declare a Savior who gives salvation full and free. Not because of anything you have done, but simply turning to Him and trusting in Him. You mean to tell me, if I simply come to Him in faith, I'll be completely forgiven? You mean to tell me, just because of trusting what He's done, Sin, Satan, and death are no longer terrors to me. You mean to tell me, just by trusting in Him, that He'll come make a home in my heart through giving me His Spirit? Good news that is often too good to be true. But in fact, the Bible says, oh no, it is oh so true. And so what would have been better is all the disciples examining and meditating on the truth of what they heard like Peter did. Notice verse 12. 
he goes to examine the truth. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping up. I'm sorry, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, kids, you want to see in that verse all of the action in Peter. John's Gospel tells us that actually John went with him too, and it was a race to the tomb. And you might remember somewhat as a funny aside, John says, I beat him to the tomb. But what we see in this text, right, is Peter rose, ran, stooped, looked, saw, went, marveled. All this action. And this last word, this last verb, marveled, it could mean a negative connotation to Peter's faith or a positive connotation. It could be marveling in terms of he himself was perplexed. As long as he got to the tomb and he said, okay, this is bad. Who stole Jesus' body? It could mean that. Or, which I think is more likely, it could mean, oh my, it happened. And what we see in time of course, Peter not, come, not only comes to full faith in Jesus Christ, he is one of God's chosen apostles that begins to assault the gates of hell through his preaching of a crucified, buried, and risen Christ. And I want that to encourage you, even here this morning. Maybe you in your own struggle towards truth, or you have a child or a grandchild, a loved one or a friend that is close to Christ, has been close to Christ, yet is not yet coming to the truth of who Jesus is. It even happened with the apostles. You continue to pray. You continue to hope. You continue to beg that they too might come to see He is risen indeed and go proclaim it themselves. Last Sunday, all of the golf world was in a tizzy. This golfer named Tiger Woods won the Masters. It's the fifth time he's won it. First time in 14 years, all in a tizzy, because his career had been decried or supposedly declared dead and buried. And so if you began to read these articles from all of these sports writers in the major outlets on Sunday evening and Monday morning, it was this news of astonishment. Can you believe this happened? If you looked on social media from all celebrities around the world, even our president's Twitter account, amazed at this really happened? It was as though they wanted to say, come to Augusta National and see this story that you just would never believe actually took place. And what has happened ever since that first Easter Sunday is that God's people throughout the ages are taking others by the hand and saying, hey, come with me to the empty tomb and see this story that you wouldn't believe how wonderful it is, but I want to show you how amazing and incredible it is that the king who is crucified is now risen. So what I want to do as we begin to close is take you by the hand and come to the tomb and see two things about what this text tells us regarding about Jesus. We want to come to the tomb and see Jesus is trustworthy. You see that? Jesus is trustworthy. He predicted it. He proclaimed it and he prophesied it. I will rise again. And he did. His word is sure. His testimonies are certain. His promises are steady. So if you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder in whom or in what you are trusting in ultimately. Who are you trusting in to never let you down? To never do you wrong? To always be completely true? Well, we proclaim as Christians that there is one person and only one person 
who is completely and perfectly trustworthy. And it's Jesus Christ. And we know it because he rose again on the third day. Jesus is trustworthy. Secondly, Jesus has all victory. Because if he had remained dead, I still think to some degree history would have celebrated him. But just as a virtuous teacher. But he rose again. So what is he? A victorious Savior. That's why the New Testament's going to go on to sing and to shout. Death has lost its victory. Death has lost its sting. Revelation chapter 1 will say, Behold the risen Christ, and you know what's in his hands? The keys of death and Hades. He owns it. And what is coming is a triumphal march of all God's people to the new heavens and the new earth. He has all victory and is going to lead his people in victorious, triumphant procession. The question then is, will you be a part of it? Or, will his coming at the end of the age be your defeat unto an eternal torment as you reject him? But the truth of this is if you receive him, you'll be a part of this victorious army rising to glory and eternal joy at the Father's right hand forever where you will see this King risen, exalted in all of His beauty. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. You know, 51 years after Time Magazine ran that iconic cover, Is God Dead? They ran another three-word question cover with a black background and same red type font. This time the question was, is truth dead? We, of course, proclaim a religion of resurrection. God is not dead. His Son is alive. The living one who is the truth ascended on high. He is completely trustworthy. He has all the victory. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Let us pray together. Father, we thank You that You were pleased in the offering of obedience, perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. That You raised Him on the third day to vindicate His righteousness, to declare His holiness and glory to the nations that we even may gather this day to remember Him and to revel in Him, reflecting upon His work on our behalf. Raise us, we pray, to new life in Jesus Christ through faith in Him, that we may indeed be empowered to walk lives of holiness, dying to sin, and living to righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.